In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. C.S. Lewis said, No philosophical theory which I have yet come across is a radical improvement on the words of Genesis that in the beginning God made heaven and earth. From the beginning to the end, the Bible affirms that God is creator and we are his creation. This theme is woven through the whole of the canon of Scripture. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul. They all say that God is creator. He created us. In Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over all the wild animals that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's the way the Bible begins. And then you go all the way to the very end in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 11. It says, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. We're starting a new sermon series today called The Whole Story. And over the next several weeks, we're going to be looking at these uh, about five basic types of stories that human beings have been telling each other for thousands of years and how the Bible uses each of those types of story to help us understand God's whole story. And how when we take part of that story and we bring it into our lives, God uses those to make us more whole, more complete, to have his peace, his shalom. Today we're going to talk about the epic story of creation and the fall and our redemption when Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins and rose again on the third day and the recreation, the renewal of all things that we're looking forward to when Christ comes again. It's an epic story. It's huge. The first part of this epic story teaches us that God created the world and everything in it. Not only did he create it, but his creation was perfect in the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 4, God creates light, and he says, this is good. And that phrase will get repeated six more times. This is good. This is good. This is good as God creates the world. And then he creates humanity, the, the, the crowning glory, the pinnacle of his creation, and he says, this is very good. Now, the word that's translated good there is a word that means an objective good. It's good in and of itself. It's not relative good. It's not like when you go to the pizza place and it's not your favorite and you go, how is it? Well, it's good. <laughs> this is objective good. It's good in and of itself, but it is both dependent and derivative. It depends on God. It's derived from him. Creation is good. God designed it to be perfect. And part of that perfection was that humanity really was free. They had a real choice in whether or not they were going to obey God. People ask the question, why did God bother to put the tree of the knowledge of the good and evil in the garden? I mean, isn't he kind of setting them up for failure? No, he's guaranteeing their freedom. Adam and Eve were the most free people who ever lived for a while. Think about it. I want you to think about this. This is how they lived their life, at least until they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Genesis 1.31, it says that they were free from the cancerous effects of sin. Can you imagine what it would be like to never, ever feel guilty for anything? That was how they lived for a while. They were free from shame, Genesis 2.25 says. 
Can you imagine what it would be like to never feel ashamed for anything? You know that stuff that runs through your head at night when you can't sleep, like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have done that. For a while, they didn't have to deal with that. They were free from toil, Genesis 2.9 says. They didn't have to work. They lived in a perfect environment that just produced food by itself. Can you imagine living at the best buffet in the world? That was their life. And Genesis 1.28 says that they were free from fear. Can you imagine walking out in the dark at night and not being afraid? That was their life. And in the epic story that you heard earlier, I'm sure you figured out that caretaker and life bringer are stand-ins for Adam and Eve. But also for you and I. We're part of that. This story, it's our story. This epic story that covers creation and fall and redemption and recreation, it's, it's our story too. In our lives, this epic story carries on. See, God's design, his desire for us is perfection, it's freedom, it's joy. And that's the way the story started. But it didn't stay that way long. The maker is first, but he is not alone. In the deeps of time before he created the void, the maker created spirit beings to attend him in glory. One of them, in his selfish pride, regarded himself as a rival to the maker and led a rebellion, and there was a war in the maker's realm. The maker was victorious and cast down his enemy. The enemy invaded the maker's creation intent on destroying it. The enemy chose his battleground, the very trees the makers placed in the garden to bless and free caretaker and his life bringer. In the dawn of days, the caretaker and life bringer were working in the garden. The enemy came up on them, unaware, cloaking himself in a form both intriguing and beguiling. He told life bringer that if she would dig up the dirt around one of the trees, she would find buried there a secret knowledge. Though she fought with all her will, it was not sufficient, and neither was caretaker's. Both life bringer and caretaker began to dig up the foundations of the tree of freedom. As they dug away the dirt, the sky darkened and their vision dimmed. All of a sudden, as caretaker exposed the final root, a chasm opened beneath them. In that moment, the maker's entire realm fell victim to a dire curse. For out of the chasm came all kinds of evil creatures and demons from the enemy. Caretaker and life bringer tried to cover up what they had done, but the chasm kept belching forth evil. There's no one righteous, not even one. That's the verdict on humanity in both Old and New Testaments. In Psalm 14, verse 2, it says, The Lord looks down from heaven on all mankind to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned away. All have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. Paul will reaffirm that assessment when he quotes this verse in Romans chapter 3, verse 10. Just as the whole Bible affirms that God is creator and that his creation was perfect in the beginning, the whole Bible also affirms that mankind is fallen, that we have fallen headlong into the chasm of sin. 
Sometimes around here at Chapel Rock, we use the language of broken, that we're broken. We're not, we're not the way God designed us anymore. Genesis 3, 1 through 7 tells the story of the fall of mankind. In the story, Satan comes to Adam and Eve into this perfection that God has created and he tempts them with the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The only thing that God is the only, they have one rule. You, you had one job. Don't eat that. Couldn't pull it off. And look at what happens in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her and never said a word. <laughs> Y'all don't just blame Eve. Adam was right there the whole time. Okay. <laughs> and he ate it. And in that moment, the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. They experienced shame and guilt for the first time. That's the fall. That's when we were broken. That's when the chasm of sin opened up underneath our feet and we fell headlong into it. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we, Good Friday is so powerful. That's why we celebrate this morning. Because we needed it. The book of Revelation depicts this chasm quite vividly in Revelation chapter 9, verse 1. Look at this. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss. Sounds terrifying, doesn't it? It should. It's an image of the evil that has poured out of humanity's decision to rebel against God pretty much since the beginning of time. The problem is there are people out there who don't want to admit that this is real. There are people out there who want to put their head in the sand and pretend like this isn't happening. They don't, they don't want to accept their sinfulness. They don't want to have to face it. You know, they don't, they're not broken. They just have issues, you know? They're not fallen, they just haven't found themselves yet. Listen, if you refuse to accept the fact that we are broken, we're fallen because of our own individual sin as well as that of our species, then you will be willfully out of sync with the reality around you. When you watch the news and you're like, why are all these school shootings happening? Sin. That's why. Yours or somebody else's. Why are politicians corrupt? Sin. Why is there even such a thing as the Me Too movement? Sin. If you don't want to acknowledge that we're fallen, we're broken, we need a Savior, your world isn't going to make sense to you. C.S. Lewis, who I quoted earlier, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, was no stranger to epic stories he made a statement that really gets at the heart of this. He said this, there's no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Just as in the epic story you heard earlier, our enemy Satan chose God's creation as his battleground. Your heart, soul, mind, and strength are undergoing a constant battle. So who's going to win? See, Jesus experienced that battle fully on the night he was betrayed. 
That was why he was in such agony in the garden. He prayed three times, I don't want to do this, Dad. But this is about what you want, not what I want. And we lose our battle sometimes daily. He won his, which is why his sacrifice on the cross counts for me and for you. He won that battle. But because of our brokenness, we carry part of the chasm around with us all the time. See, the Bible teaches that that God created the world to be perfect, and and he created us to live in in perfection and freedom all the time. But when Adam and Eve sinned, in which we replicate each in our own individual lives too, the world is broken, and the chasm of sin opened up. See, I believe that Christianity and the epic story that it tells is the only system of belief that can make sense of a world that's both beautiful and savage. It's It's the only thing that actually adequately explains why things are the way they are. It explains the constant battle in the human soul between good and evil. We're made in the image of God, but we're broken. See, the greatest example of the love and goodness of God is that he did not allow us to remain in the chasm. He could have just written us off, y'all. He could have just said, you know what, just forget you guys. I'm tired of it. But he loves you. And so he decided to do something about it. The maker is first, but the opening of the chasm had transformed his perfect and peaceful realm into a place of struggle, pain, and death. The chasm put forth a constant flow of evils and horrors into the maker's realm. Caretaker and life bringer eventually died, but their sons and daughters carried on their legacy. The maker's righteous heart was grieved over the evils that the sons of caretaker and daughters of life bringer had committed in the maker's realm. Ages passed, the maker knew that the only way to close the chasm was to become like caretaker and life bringer. So the maker sent himself. His very presence was located in the one. In the course of time, the one was born, but he was different. The one lived a life untainted by the evils flowing out of the chasm. He carried with him the power of the maker. He used that power to reverse the effects of the evil that the chasm constantly vomited forth. It was the one who healed the sick. He gave the blind their sight. He taught the people the ways of the maker. But those caretakers and life bringers who had learned to take the evils of the chasm and turn them to their own benefit resolved to kill the one, to throw him into the chasm. As they approached the chasm with the one, all manner of evil beasts came out to attack him. He let them come. His blood was sprinkled all over the chasm, but he resolutely walked down and further into the maw of death, disease, disorder, discord, and darkness. The corrupt sons of caretaker and daughters of life bringer forced him into the opening nailing his spread wide arms and feet into the walls and floor of the chasm. Then the most unlikely thing happened. The chasm closed. There was a thunderous crash. The sky darkened again, and the maker's realm reverberated with shock. The one was nowhere to be seen, but the chasm was finally closed. 2,000 years, 
Before the time of Christ, the Jews celebrated Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would take the blood of a bull and sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. And when that happened, God would take all the sins of the Israelites for that whole year that hung over them like a great weight, and he'd push them back one more year. It's like your student loans. (laughs) As long as you stay in school, we'll just keep shoving them back. But one day, you got to pay for these things. And that's what happened on Good Friday. The writer of Hebrews says that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. And that's the way it was for hundreds and thousands of years. But one year, right around Passover, everything changed. God didn't have a priest pour out the blood of a bull or a goat. Rather, he poured out the blood of his son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in so doing, God poured out all his judgment for all sin, for all time on Jesus when he was on the cross. The weight of thousands of years and billions of people's worth of sin came crashing down on him as he hung on the cross, which is why he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he felt the guilt of your sin, my sin that day on the cross. And it separated him from that perfect communion he'd had with his father. And the power of his sacrifice, a perfect sinless life in exchange for ours, was so great that it destroyed any power sin might have in the future until the future becomes eternity. The cross of Jesus is the center point of history. It's the most epic thing that's ever happened on our planet, or any other one for that matter. That our God is the sovereign creator of the universe, the Lord of history, who in the person of Jesus Christ has invaded the sin-wrecked darkness of this world and poured out his life in agony on the cross to redeem you. As the writer of Hebrews says, the thousands of sacrifices and meticulous obedience to the law will never make you right with God because we're already broken by the chasm of our sin. That's what Paul's getting at in Galatians chapter 3. Look at this. Galatians 3.10 says, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Anybody in here obey God perfectly all the time for your whole life? I didn't think so. So this applies to you. But look, we keep going. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. In the epic story you heard earlier, the one who's the Christ figure in the story sacrifices his life by walking down into the chasm. He willingly faces all the demons and beasts and evil that's coming out of it because he loves life bringer and caretaker. And his sacrifice reverses the curse that the maker's creation was under. What has always amazed me about Jesus' sacrifice is that because of his foreknowledge, he knew everything he was about to encounter. He knew every stroke of the whip, he knew it was coming. Every pound of the hammer in the nails that went into his wrists and his feet, he knew it was going to happen. And he did it anyway. Because he loves you. Because he doesn't want to spend eternity without you. 
This theme of a hero who sacrifices himself or herself for those that they love is nearly universal in epic and heroic literature. I mean, think about some of the stories that we've told as a culture just in the last 10 or 15 years. Lord of the Rings, you got, you know, Frodo with the ring. Aragorn, Gandalf, those guys, they pay a heavy price for that. Lily Potter in the Harry Potter stuff gives her life for her son. In the Marvel movies, you know, Steve Rogers, Captain America, before he's a superhero, dives on a grenade to save his buddies. We tell that story. And here's the thing. Occasionally, it happens in real life, in our town. Did you hear the story this week about Anthony Burgess? 24-year-old father. Went to see a buddy at their apartment complex. Has three-year-old daughter in the car. She was loose in the car kicked the gear shift, and the car rolled down an embankment into a retention pond. And he saw it happening. He ran to get his daughter, told her, get in the back seat. He pulled her out, handed her to a friend. Friend got her to say if he turned around, didn't, didn't see Anthony. He can't swim. And he knew that. And he dove into this icy retention pond to save his daughter. He gave his life to save his little girl. That happened in our town Monday. See, these stories grab us. Someone who's willing to give their life on behalf of someone else, it grabs us. The reason that these moments are so powerful, that they resonate so strongly with us, is that they simply echo the greatest sacrifice, the most epic story ever that Jesus' death on the cross tells. Listen, Jesus walked into torment and death willingly because he loves you and he wants you to be part of his story. And that's where this epic story of redemption turns. It looked like the enemy had won. (laughs) And God changed the story. When three days later, Jesus rose again. See, this is what we celebrate every Sunday when we take communion. We, we tell this story. We participate in the death and resurrection of Jesus every week when we take this. Every time you take the bread and juice, you affirm your part in the story. I want to ask our servers to go to the back at this time. We're going to take communion together this morning. Each week, this is something we do here at Chapel Rock, and we tell this story once again. And so I would encourage you, if if you're new here today, please, uh, if you're a believer in Jesus, if you've accepted him as Savior and Lord, then we invite you to participate uh, with us in this. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song together, and then after the song, I'm going to pray, and after I pray, our servers will pass the emblems, and you just partake of them whenever you're ready after a time of reflection. I'm going to ask you to stand with me as we sing to our Lord and Savior together. The maker is first. Before time began, the maker was alone. But the maker desires to know and be known by his creation. He created caretaker and life bringer to know him and be known by him. Their betrayal and the opening of the chasm changed that. But the maker sent the one. And by the sacrifice of his own blood, the chasm was closed. The maker is first. But he lowered himself. He became the last and least to close the chasm and reverse the vile curse that it spewed forth into the maker's realm. 
when the caretakers who had been corrupted by the chasm killed the one, they thought they had put an end to the maker's attempt to bring his realm back under his rule. They were wrong, very wrong. On the third day after the one had gone into the chasm, there was an earthquake, and the towers that had been built around the chasm tumbled into ruin. Rising out of the rack was the one. He was alive, standing there in the power and glory of the maker. Holy life and joy pulsed out of him, echoed in the ruins of the chasm's power and the enemy's plans. Then, as the sons of caretaker and daughters of lifebringer watched in awe, the one pointed to the sky, and down from heavens came the foundations of a great city. The city was shining in glory. It was as perfect in beauty and symmetry as the garden and trees had been. Standing amidst the destroyed foundations built on the chasm, the one looked into the eyes of the sons of caretaker and daughters of lifebringer and invited them to join him in his city. He invited them to share its glory, beauty, and joy. In St. Augustine's classic work, The City of God, he describes the kingdom of God as a city. He also describes the kingdom of the enemy, Satan, as a city as well. And at the end, the final act of our epic story, a choice is laid before us. Will you choose the chasm or the city? Though in the story, the city is described much in the same way that Revelation describes uh, heaven coming down out of heaven from God, that will one day happen. Even so, I'm in agreement with Augustine here. The city of God begins now here in us this morning. See, when the angel rolled the stone away on Easter Sunday morning so the disciples could see that Jesus was risen, God also rolled open the doors to the city. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we get to start life in the city of God right now, today. Our citizenship is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus. Life in the city starts now. The risen Lord is both the deepest foundation and the highest gleaming spire of his great city. See, each of the four Gospels presents a picture of this epic hero, Jesus, the resurrected Lord who is invincible and full of life and vitality, fully alive, powerfully active in the world. They, they all present these different pictures. In Matthew 28, the risen Jesus that we read earlier appears to his disciples, and he rightfully then later in the chapter claims, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him, and he gives the great commission. In Mark 16, the risen Christ is a little bit more of a mystery. The, the gospel probably ought to end with dot, dot, dot. He's risen from the dead. He's alive. And we get to write the rest of that story. In Luke 24, Jesus enters a room that's locked because they're afraid, and he eats a meal with his disciples. He's not a ghost. He's risen bodily from the grave. He says, Thomas, the doubting one, come here, bring your finger, stick it there. I'm alive. In John's gospel, we see that the experience of death and resurrection has not changed Jesus' personality. He's still deeply concerned about the hearts of his followers. The resurrection of Jesus and your response to it in faith is what guarantees your access to the city of God. 
That grace is what enables you to become part of this epic story. It allows your story to have a happy ending. Listen, you cannot earn your way in. To try to do that is to go back to living in the chasm. A few years ago, the former mayor of New York City, Michael Bloomberg, made news when he talked about heaven. Look at this quote from him. He said, I'm telling you that if there is a God, notice what he said, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I earn my place in heaven. It's not even close. Stand over here. Because <laughs> when God smites you, I don't want to get hit with the shrapnel, you know. Sorry, Mr. Mayor, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. There was only one who's worthy of life in the city. And it was his sacrifice on Good Friday and his resurrection on Easter Sunday that enables us to be part of it. That enables us to live there. And the great news is that begins now. We get to live the resurrection now. We get to experience the joys of living in his city now. Even as we clean up the mess made by the chasm. Our risen Lord living in us is what enables us to do that. And there's so much more to this story than we have time to tell today. If you want to understand it better, um, I would encourage you to sign up for our Welcome to the Rock experience. There's information in your bulletin about how to do that, uh, and, and we can help kind of talk you through that. As I said before, a, a choice is laid before you today. Is it going to be the chasm or the city? What are you going to pick? You've got a part in this epic story, and it's really up to you to choose what that part is. You can choose the chasm and leave here and go home and hunt for eggs and have ham and all that stuff. but your story won't end well. Or you can choose the city. You can surrender your life to the one, to Jesus Christ. You can be baptized. You can receive the Holy Spirit of God to live in you and guarantee your place in the city. You can have all your sin and guilt and shame washed away this morning because of the resurrection of Jesus. And you can live in victory over sin and death for the rest of your life and even beyond this life into eternity. You see, one day this part of the epic story will end and a new chapter will begin. And when that day comes, it will be too late for choosing. Don't wait. Will you indulge me one more C.S. Lewis quote? Just one more. He wrote this. When the author walks onto the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, all right. But what, good, what is good of saying that you're on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else comes crashing in. This time it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. Then it will be too late for choosing your side. That will not be for the time for choosing. That will be the time to discover which side we have really chosen. Whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. See, here's the choice laid before you today. You can decide the way your story plays out. So what are you going to choose? Some of you may be here this morning and your story's not going quite the way you thought it would or hoped it would. Well, I want to tell you on Easter Sunday, you can change the way your story goes. Jesus, because of his resurrection, can rewrite your story. Did you hear me today? When you make Jesus the hero of your story, 
Your whole story gets better. And so what I want you to do is to take this bookmark that was in your bulletin, and you put it in your Bible, and you remember that Jesus is the hero of your story. Quit trying to be the hero of your own story. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. But when you make Jesus the hero of your story, your whole story gets better. If you're here this morning and you're ready to choose the city, to give your life to Jesus, to experience the death and resurrection of Jesus this morning, then you can come. We're going to have folks down front. I'm going to ask you to stand with me. We're going to sing one more song. And if you've never done that before, if you've never made Jesus your Lord, you come today, Easter Sunday, and you choose the city. You let him change your story. I don't, he won't erase all the bad stuff, but he'll redeem it. It'll turn. And it'll end better than you ever imagined it could. Let's sing together this morning.